let me invite you now, if you would, to please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we're in chapter 14. And reading chapter 14 reminds me of a quote by Thomas Akempis in his book, The Imitation of Christ, written in the 15th century, which in Latin is homo proponent deus disponent, which means man proposes, God disposes. And we're going to see that even though God is not mentioned in chapter 14, he is there as he is here. And he's working his will out through the machinations of men. There is a series that I have streamed that I recommend nobody in the church ever watch. And it's called Succession. It's about a family of siblings trying to take over their father's vast media empire. There's not a redeemable character in the whole series. But this chapter reminds me a lot of Succession. There's a whole lot of manipulation going on here, a whole lot of people attempting to get by their own wits, which God would have probably given them by grace if they had just looked to him. But with that said, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. We'll read the entire chapter uh, 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Now let me correct this right away. Our translations say often, you may have one that say, says David longed for Absalom. Really, the verb in Hebrew is the Hebrew word kalah, which means to be spent or to be used up which meant David did not long in his heart to be reunited with Absalom. David was done with him. David was against Absalom, and you will see why as we continue. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil. But behave like a woman who's been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy their heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then David said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. 
Then the king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill, me, kill no more, and my sons be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not, will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king, and it may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For the lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king says... Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go bring back the young man, Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I found favor in your sight, my lord the king in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart at his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel there was no one, one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair on his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Abraham's servants set the fields on fire. 
Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to, uh, to, to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, as we look at this rather lengthy chapter, we pray that you would enable us to see your hand and that you would enable us to see what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to his church today. We pray that the preaching of the word would find its target in our hearts today. We pray that you would be pleased to bless us. You would be pleased to show us things in our own hearts that are awry. And we pray and look forward to the ministry of your word and spirit today. And may we see Jesus and him only. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Joab was probably one of those people, and this is in your bulletin as an opening quote, who, abs- who is absolutely sure they know what needs to be done and fully confident that they are the ones who are able to do what needs to be done. Probably an off-the-chart type A kind of guy. They are not rare One of the causes of conflicts in nations, communities, and organizations, and even families is different people with different ideas about what should be done, each persuaded that he or she knows best. Joab's a warrior. He's a military general. He's brilliant. He's loyal to David. He had done favors for David, especially in the incident with Bathsheba in covering up Uriah's death. And he also had given David credit for military victories that David didn't even appear at. Joab had one strong, uh, passionate drive, and that was to see the succession of the king occur smoothly. And so Joab begins to plot And he begins to uh, come up with various ways uh, of trying to help fix that which was in many ways unfixable. Um, We're not thinking here about people who had bad motives necessarily. uh, Joab wanted to disentangle the trouble here that had come upon King David and his family and his kingdom. And he he wanted to put things right. He wanted to help. At least I'm sure that's how he saw it if you had asked him. But the problem is the mess that results from human sin is often unfixable. I think of other instances in the Bible where people decided to help God out. And it takes a lot of wisdom about when to know, when to act, when to pray, when to wait, how to proceed. And and Joab is just a take charge kind of guy. He wants things fixed, and he goes about his business to do so by finding a woman from Tekoa to come and uh, 
intercede sort of in a Nathan-like way when he confronted David over his sin with Bathsheba. He wants this woman to use the same kind of parable imagery to get to the king's heart about reconciling with Absalom. Now, I need to bring you up to speed. If you don't know this story, you need to know a little more than uh, what uh, I'm able to tell you, or uh, you're able to understand immediately. Chapter 13 of 2 Samuel ended with David abandoning his desire to march against Absalom for the murdering of Amnon. Amnon was the eldest son of David who was the heir to the throne. Absalom murdered him because Amnon raped his sister Tamar, his full sister. Amnon was a half-brother. Absalom and Tamar were, had the same mother and father. Uh, and so Absalom took vengeance. He waited two years to do it, but he took vengeance. And even though David uh, understood all of that, he had not gone to Absalom. He was still in grief over the loss of Amnon. And so what we're seeing work out in David's life is Nathan the prophet told him, the sword of the Lord will visit your house. Things are going to happen to you and your family that are fallout and consequences of your sin of adultery with Bathsheba and your sin of playing the hitman, having Uriah the Hittite killed, and then your attempt to cover it up. Yes, David, you have sinned. Yes, David, you're forgiven, but the sword will not depart your house. And now we see the sword in Absalom. Consequences coming because of that particular thing. Now, Absalom, or excuse me, Joab now devises a scheme or a plan. There's a whole lot of scheming going on. We have Joab scheming, using this woman as part of his scheme. We have David, oddly enough, scheming. And we have Absalom scheming. They all got a plan. They're all working their plan. And things only get worse. So... As we look at chapter 14, Joab has always been a man of action. He's always been a can-do kind of guy. And we get insight here into political machinations in Israel. This is all politics, real politic. And he's been wrong in the past, but he's also been helpful for David in a number of occasions. But he realizes that David's heart is still against Absalom, and that's not a good thing politically speaking. He wants to change this, and so that is the motive behind uh, Joab wanting Absalom back. But given Joab's concern for the security of the monarchy and the way in which uh, his ruse is composed, it's likely because Joab realized that there was popular support for bringing back the prince, and Joab wanted David to be seen in a favorable light. Now, before we get to Absalom, he was growing in popularity. He was a rock star. He's the next greatest thing there was. Man had a head of hair. Every woman in this building would envy, and some men more than others. This man was gorgeous. He was drop-dead gorgeous, not a flaw as we see 
anywhere. Joab had eyes. Joab had ears. Joab understood how life works. And he knew that this was a very attractive man. And for David to be at odds with him, to be holding a grudge against him politically was suicide. And so he selects this woman from Tekoa, Robert Alter, who's an Old Testament Hebrew scholar, a Jew himself, not a believer, says Tekoa is 10 miles north of Jerusalem. Every other evangelical biblical scholar I've read says Tekoa is 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So where is it? Who the heck knows? Amos was from Tekoa. He was a fig picker, picker, and he wrote the book of Amos as a prophet in the Old Testament. But that's where this woman is from. She had a reputation for being wise, and so Joab uses her as a spokesperson for himself. And so the wily general enlists the aid of a wise woman in order to convince David to bring back his exiled son and... Uh, so she was from Tekoa. David would more than likely not recognize her or know her. And the woman is to pretend to be mourning in grief and to tell the king a fictional tale of her two sons, one who had killed the other, leaving the rest of the family angry with the murderer to the point where they would kill him in retribution. The woman pleads for the life of the murderer, and David grants her request. In response, the woman asked the king, uh, the king's pardon and her family that uh, David be without guilt. This suggests that the woman is willing to bear the guilt of the king who is protecting her exiled son and was actually interfering with the rights of the avenger of blood to kill the murderer. When David accedes to her request, the woman turns his judgment on him, saying, when the king says this, does he not convict himself? Sort of like Nathan's word, you are the man. You are the person in this story that I'm talking about. And so David un begins to understand this. And uh, when the king says this, does he not convict himself? In other words, by offering protection to her son, the king, in fairness, should offer it to his own exiled son, that is Absalom. Absalom's away in Geshur. He's been living there two years at this point. He's out of the realm, and David has done nothing in regard to him other than hold a pretty serious grudge. So Absalom had been in exile. David had somewhat been in the role of the avenger of blood while the people of God had wanted to bring Absalom back. Surprisingly, even after turning the story on the king, the woman stays in character and goes back to her story again, pretending the situation with her fictional son was real and that the reason for her approaching the king was that. However, the woman had applied it directly to David and Absalom. The cat was out of the bag, so to speak. The king is not easily fooled and does not buy her story and correctly discerns this is Joab. David knows Joab. His handwriting and fingerprints were all over this story, as brilliant as it may have appeared to Joab. Joab thought he had him. 
But the woman then turns and responds with flattery, probably fearing for her life, telling the king that he's the wisest person, he's wiser than any angel of God, and that she knew she couldn't pull a fast one on him. David did not suspect, uh, um, this of course was already seen to be untrue in how David did not suspect Amnon was out for Tamar as Absalom uh, somehow uh, surmised easily or that Absalom hated Amnon and was planning his death which Joab caught on to long before David David's ignorance will also be underscored in the very next chapter as Absalom undertakes subversive activities against David right under his nose as I told you last week David is growing older he's becoming more and more passive and the results of his sinful activity seems to have dimmed his ability to be present in any moment. And he's not present except here. Remarkable, David knows the whole story is meant to trick him in bringing Absalom back. But he agrees to all that Joab wanted. And so David was not deceived. His change of mind was not based on being tricked by the woman. Instead, David had been persuaded to act in this way. And the key part of her argument seems to be her assertion that God devises ways so that banished person does not remain banished from him. And so this theological perspective persuades David to act similarly in regard to Absalom's case. David was holding a grudge. He was full of resentment and bitter toward Absalom for killing his brother, David's firstborn son, Amnon. And so David was not thinking forgiveness. He was not thinking restoration because he saw Absalom's sin as what? Bigger than his own. You know, you'll never forgive anybody if you think they're a worse sinner than you are. You won't do it. If you think you're better than someone and they've done something to offend you, it is impossible to forgive them. But if you, like David, beginning here, begins to see that what Absalom has done is a mirror, a mimic, as it were, of what David had done in so many ways. And so David maybe here begins to see the light just a little, but I wouldn't get my hopes up too much. The theme of exile and return that the woman refers to becomes one of the major themes in 2 Samuel 14 through 20, the whole life of Absalom. In terms of which, whether or not God will bring David back to Jerusalem. In response to the woman, David addresses Joab directly as the general must have been present during the woman's performance. The king agrees his request and orders him to bring back Absalom. Now in verses 23 to 27, we have the story of the return of Absalom. And although Joab was allowed to bring him back, David refused to give his son an audience, but instead had Absalom sent to his own home. David had not longed to see Absalom, but apparently still continued with very hard feelings toward his son. After his return, the narrator tells us of Absalom's fame, his good looks, his spotless skin, and his prolific hair growth. 
he'd make a perfect TV evangelist. <laughs> Charisma oozed out of every pore. He was the darling of all the women of Israel and the man that all the men wanted to be. Absalom, he's gorgeous. And so, like today, with widespread adoration lavished on good-looking actors, actresses, and public figures, Absalom's winning looks led to his popularity in Israel. Although we remember in 1 Samuel where it says God does not look on the outward appearance, but on the heart. And so Absalom is sort of Saul revisited. That's what's going on here. Saul stood head and shoulders above all in Israel. Saul was a handsome man. He was a warrior. He was the kind of guy you wanted to be your leader. And David himself was also a very good-looking man and a very charismatic person. And, he, you know, he's a rock star. He could write music, read the Psalms. He wrote most of them. You know, he could probably dance. We know that Michal, his wife... <laughs> Or Michal, his wife, despised him when he danced before the ark of the Lord when they brought that back. But now we got Absalom. And Absalom's coming home. And a guy like Absalom isn't going to sit back and take things as they are. And so he was impressive. And his appearance contributed to his vast popularity. We're also told of Absalom's own children three sons and a daughter, and so we are only told the daughter's name. Her name is Tamar. He named her after his sister who had been murdered. Like her aunt, she was a beautiful woman. Later in 2 Samuel 18, we find uh, out that Absalom had no sons, which suggests that they probably died quite young, and that was not unusual in that time. So Absalom desires to get an audience for, for the king. He's been sitting around in, I mean, in, the, in his house and he's thinking to himself, I'm here. Let's get this thing going. You know, I'm losing time. I'm not always going to be this pretty the rest of my life. So I need to take advantage of what I've got going and I can't wait on people like David to come through for me in the end. That's interesting. Two years pass, and he's still not met up with his father. Again, underscoring David's anger, resentment, and bitterness over Absalom killing David's firstborn. Apparently dissatisfied with the situation, Absalom twice attempts to get Joab to, sh to come to his home, but Joab refuses. He wants Joab to go and intercede with King David so that he could have an audience with the king. But perhaps Joab was saying, look, just having you back in the land, that's enough for you to be concerned about right now. Perhaps Joab was satisfied with having the heir back in the land, but he didn't want to again try to approach the king for more favors. Maybe he felt like he'd run out of them. Alternatively, Joab may have thought better of the usefulness of Absalom and therefore was reluctant to assist him further. In order to get Joab's attention, Absalom sits, sends out his servants to set Joab's barley field on fire. 
Again, you see the scheming. You see the mess. You see the interlocking, the strands of the conflict in this family. This family was the poster family for dysfunction. As you look at this family, it's just everybody for himself. And David is just a big sulking mass at this point. He is so disappointed, as it were, in all himself and in his family. And so he has no motivation to attempt to reconcile anything. He's taken matters into his own hands too many times and maybe perhaps was depressed and despondent. And so Absalom was willing to use any means necessary to get what he wanted. He's ruthless. And as we continue to look at him, if you want to read ahead, you can read ahead. But uh, he ends up being trouble. Trouble with a capital T. So the arson is successful. Joab responds and finally agrees to go to the king for Absalom. Despite its success in getting Joab's attention, the arson incident was probably not soon forgotten by Joab, who later is instrumental in Absalom's demise. In response, David summons Absalom, and the father and son are reconciled at last with David kissing his son. But I want to tell you something. This is not the kiss of the father in the prodigal son. This is all objective, kingly stuff done for show. David still harbors a lot of hatred in his heart for his son. But notice the text doesn't mention David as his father. It mentions him in his office as king. And all that he really does is at least reinstate him in a kingly fashion back into the family but there's no mention of really any deep reconciliation this reconciliation however was of really only one way with Absalom harboring a grudge against his father for excluding him so long and David harboring a grudge H have you ever had those moments where you went to reconcile with someone and you went through the motions but you knew you knew in your heart this ain't over. That's what we have here. We have a man holding a grudge, a king holding a grudge against his son with passion. And so, in conclusion, and you're saying, how can you preach on how many verses are in here? 33 verses and almost be through at this time of the sermon. We got a lot more to go. No, we don't. What all I want to do now is try to bring this story home to us living in 2022. What does this narrative in the Bible tell us? That none of David's immediate sons are the one. No matter how good looking, no matter how talented, no matter how gifted, no matter how appealing to everyone, they're not the son of David we're looking for. And we see in all of them deep fissures and flaws morally and lack of integrity and a desire for power and comfort and pleasure and position. These men are, are driven by idolatry in the heart. 
And so what we see is, is there must be one greater than David who will come to fix the mess. Because it is a mess. Like most families I know. We all look good on the outside, don't we? You all look like everything's lovely. I ask you this morning as you're leaving, how's it going? Oh, it's just great, Pastor Tim. If God was any better to me, I don't think I could stand it. And you go home, and it's nothing but brokenness everywhere you look. And the truth is, you know, you may be sitting here thinking along with me, why doesn't God do something about this? Why is he taking so long to fix this broken planet? Well, number one, we don't know how bad it is. It's not that God couldn't fix it in a moment. The reason why God doesn't fix it in a moment is because God is patient. And he's calling as many as he can to repentance. And people aren't responding to him in that regard. And so God waits but he's already done the ultimate thing to fix the world and sending the son of David to go to the cross and accomplish reconciliation for us with the Father and for any who believe. And the first coming of Christ was the coming to offer himself as a sacrifice to bring about reconciliation that we could become new creatures in Christ Jesus and be visited with the mercy of God. But at the same time, we also need to realize that there's a second coming. And the second coming, you know, people often say, why doesn't God do anything about it? He has done something about it. He is doing something about it, and he will do something about it. You just don't know how deep it goes. You don't even know as deep as it goes in you, and neither do I. But we know that there's brokenness all around us. Family dysfunction is everywhere. Relational dissonance is everywhere. Is there any peace? Do people get along? And the answer is no. That's what sin does. It destroys us vertically with God. It separates us and horizontally, relationally with one another. And I put my finger on the, the, the sin that's beneath every sin, and it's idolatry. And people are trying with everything there is within them to find. I, had a, uh, I was listening to a, a preacher from California who does little spots on uh, being saved. I won't call his name because I don't want to bash him. I'm sure he has a lot of positive things about him. But he said something that theologically made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. He said, people are lost and they're seeking for God. Kind of like G.K. Chesterton who once said, the man knocking on a door of a brothel is looking for God. And the amazing thing is, what do you mean he's looking for God? He's looking to fill the hole in his soul. And he thinks by fulfilling his pleasures, he will be sated and satisfied but it only aggravates it and increases more. This preacher said, all people are seeking God and God is seeking people, but it sort of left me with the impression that you have the deciding vote. And the fact is, if God decides to set the seeker on you, he will have you. He will come for you. He will take you. And he will take you to be his own. You know, David was a man after God's own heart. He didn't become a man after God's own heart, and God decided to say that about him. 
He was a man after God's own heart because God sought him out and set him apart to belong to him. But David did everything Saul did and worse. It's like Jacob. Have you ever read the story of Jacob in the narrative of the Bible? What a con man. What a jerk. What a, a scumbag. And Esau was the kind of guy you'd want to go have a beer with or, or go hunting with. or You know, he was hairy. He was, an, he was a man's man. Jacob's a mama's boy. And yet God loved Jacob and he hated Esau, the Bible says. What makes the difference? If you are seeking for God, the only reason you are seeking for God is God has put the seeker in you, the Holy Spirit of God. Now here's the thing. Even though we've been saved, even though we've been converted, even though we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, even though we have a, a, a new heart and a new spirit and, and our lives have been changed, we're new creations in Christ, we all still struggle with idolatry. We take things that are good things and want them too much in a way that's disconnected with God and it destroys our families and our lives. One of the things I see in Christianity that, that are, are, are in, uh, even in our circles of evangelical believers and reformed believers is the idolatry of family. I see that so often where family is everything. And, uh, and, and family is, and how family goes, I, I hate to tell you this, but that will hurt you and it will hurt your family. Family was never meant to be everything to you. Jesus is to be everything to you, not family. We take good things and we ele elevate them to the uh, level of absolute things and they become our gods. And because we're worshiping foreign gods, it destroys us so many ways. And I am the chief among idolaters. I wish I wasn't, but I still struggle with that daily. But until Jesus comes, the ultimate fix will not occur. When you die, you'll be separated from this body of sin, and you will be able to enjoy to the fullest your relationship with God, your reconciliation with him, your justification, your glorification, all of that will be a reality. But until then, dysfunction's going to occur in our families. As much against us as we can stand, but the ultimate hope we all have is only in Jesus. That's it. And that's not nothing. <laughs> that's everything. So how are you and Jesus doing? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he your heart? Is he what you want more than anything else? Is he who you seek? Is it he who you want to be the glory of your existence? Or is it you? And so the trouble we see in the life of David. It's easy for us to stand and look at that and go, well, David really had a messed up family. And what I'm trying to tell you is the Bible's trying to reflect back to you. I have a messed up family too. And the only answer for any of it is Jesus not turning to schemes and manipulations to get what I want. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for including this narrative in your word because it causes us to watch the disintegration of a family of a man who's a man after God's own heart. And so, Father, we pray that rather than standing in condemnation toward David, we look at our own house, we look at our own heart, we look at our own home, and that we're quick to repent, quick to own, quick to confess, quick to repent of our own brokenness, our bitterness, our resentment, our refusal to forgive people, our holding of grudges, our comparing ourselves with others and wishing they would fall so that we could rise. God, help us, deliver us. And now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as those who are grateful for the unspeakable gift that you have given us in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.